0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Mai Van Chen, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. And today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Jessica Sudirgo, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam. Welcome, Jessica.
0: Hi, Van. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Jessica is an expert on ethnic and religious conflict with a regional focus on Southeast Asia. At NIAT, we just had the honor of hosting Jessica for a short visit and a lunch talk on her book project where she examines why very small groups making up less than 1% of the population becomes targets of state repression and mobilization despite their economic and political insignificance. Her impressive research agenda primarily relies on qualitative methods grounded in extensive field work. And we are very fortunate to have Jessica here with us to share more about her insights on public threat perception regarding micro-sized groups, an increasingly important topic given the rising rate of persecution against minority ethnic or religious groups in many parts of the world. So first of all, Jessica, for the audience members that might not be so familiar with your work, can you provide a brief overview of what motivated you to start your book project?
0: Yeah, um, so I think, you know, there's there's a saying that research is me-search. So um, I am of Chinese-Indonesian heritage, but I grew up in Canada, sort of my earliest memories was very much um the the ethnic and nationalist violence that erupted in Indonesia during the democratization process and for those of you who are perhaps less familiar with that in many places around Indonesia there was the eruption of anti chinese riot i think i've long puzzled over intergroup conflict I was originally interested in the Christian-Muslim violence that erupted in Maluku, and I have also written about that. But as I was sort of beginning my dissertation research and looking for topics, I wanted to sort of shift away from doing research on Maluku. And so this was sort of what was going on at the time. And what I mean by this is the targeting of sort of these Muslim minority groups, including the Ahmadiyya, but also the Shia. And Mm. there was just a lot of incidents happening. And it was really strange to me because I just never heard of this group before. And there was a time where there were incidents happening like every week, for example. So that's sort of the origin story.
1: I see. So in your book project, you argue that the Ahmadiyya communities in Indonesia is a micro-sized group that has become a frequent target of repression and violence in the democratic era. Can you explain a bit more about who made up the different Ahmadiyya communities in your study and how do they become visibly threatening across Indonesia?
0: Yeah, so the Ahmadiyya community in Indonesia is a very, very small group. They make up 0.17% of the national population. They've been in the country since about the 1920s when missionaries from what was then British Punjab came, and that was sort of the origins of the community. In many ways, like for a long time, there was obviously local conflict, right, that was happening before 2005. But, you know, I think most communities will say that things were manageable before 2005, though there was sort of conflict that was happening. So I argue that a lot of persecution of the Ahmadiyya is really about sort of policing public space. Public space is what's motivating right? a lot of this violence and this oppression of religious minorities. And so what I mean is that the majority has really sought to work to police sort of the ability to publicly proselytize. They've really tried to make sure that their Moss are not clearly distinguishable from other moss, so they're not allowed to put signs on their moss. So what I'm arguing is that my work really highlights theme
1: that way. Can you give maybe one or a couple of concrete examples of how these Ahmadiyya communities occupy public space or how they utilize public space? Yeah, so the
0: Ahmadiyya community engages in space claiming in a number of ways carry out public proselytization. They mark their mosque by identifying the mosque as a mosque belonging to the Jamaah Ahmadiyya Indonesia. And they also publicly celebrate their religious holidays. And obviously they have a right to do that. I mean, theoretically under the Indonesian constitution, but this is how they mark public space. And this is the actions that members of Indonesia's Muslim Sunni Muslim majority are against, certainly not all of
1: them. Mm, I see. Yeah. And then in your work, you also highlight the role of political entrepreneurs as well. So who are the political entrepreneurs that instrumentalize the constitutive threats of micro-sized groups like the Ahmadiyya? And what is their role in facilitating large-scale violence against these types of groups?
0: The first set are non-state actors. And more specifically, I'm talking about sort of Islamic hardliner groups. And by this, I think the most famous one is the Front Pambela Islam or the Islamic Defenders Front, which was very much at the forefront for mobilizing against the Ahmadiyya sect. So how these groups actually instrumentalized was that they would often arrange these protests, and most of these protests were centered around sort of these incidents of what I call space claiming. They tended to target mosques, right, and particularly the signs of mosques, of Ahmadi mosques. They would also try to stop the celebration of religious holidays. So some of these protests were not violent, but the majority of them were violent. The question, of course, is is why this happened, and I can talk about that a bit, but I do want to continue to answer your original question. And so that's sort of one set of actors, the non-state Islamic hardliners. The second set of actors that I think we have to identify are sort of politicians, right? And I think this is not an uncommon story. Use the supposed threat of minorities for their own political interests, as this often gains the support of a certain constituency. And so what a lot of politicians did is that they would really just make these statements against the Ahmadi communities, they would pass legislation that really restricted ability of Ahmadi communities uh, to worship. And so those were kind of the two set of actors and what they did mobilize against the Ahmadiyya community in Indonesia.
1: Yes, and I'm also really interested in getting to know what motivated these types of political entrepreneurs to engage in instrumentalizing the threats of the Ahmadi.
0: Yeah, so I don't want to sort of dismiss to say that all of these actions were completely instrumental. I do think that many of the people who worked in opposition of the to the Ahmadis really did believe that they posed a threat to Islam. It's like the term that's often used, there's definitely benefits that these political entrepreneurs have gained through their mobilization against the Ahmadiyya community. So in terms of politicians, th- they've able to leverage their anti-minority stance into positions of power at the district level and the provincial level. In terms of the Islamic hardline, I think what they did, and I argue that part of the reason why they mobilized is that mobilizing actually allowed them to showcase their mobilizational capacity, right? their ability to actually bring people together and make a lot of political noise and we have to remember that these Islamic hardliner groups, even though the members of these groups were conservatives, actually existed obviously before democratization, but For a long time, these individuals really did not have a lot of political space, right, to mobilize. And so democratization gave them this space. And as sort of new political actors, they kind of had to prove their value politically to politicians and and other actors.
1: Yeah, that is uh, really interesting to learn. So many of these uh, valuable insights you draw on archival data and over 100 interviews, as I understand You collected over 15 months of fieldwork in Indonesia. So how did you decide on adopting such a labor-intensive data collection approach? (laughs) And did you come across any notable challenges or surprises along the way?
0: I could probably talk for many hours about this, but I'll spare you the torture of listening to me on that point. But maybe I can begin by talking about sort of why I decided to go the route of doing such extensive fieldwork. And I think part of the reason why I got into political science is that I was really interested in hearing about stories and hearing about people's lives. And that was sort of this, my main motivator for wanting to pursue graduate school in the sense that I really wanted to understand people. And that was sort of the reason. I will say that I tend to really enjoy reading qualitative Work And I think also the program where you study. So the University of Toronto has a very strong tradition of doing qualitative research. That's sort of what pushed me into doing this kind of work. Another reason why I felt like I needed to do such field work was that I think I thought I really needed that um, amount of time, and part of it was really due to the need to make contacts with communities that I had prior to the fieldwork experience had never thought to, but like I didn't know members of Islamic hardliner groups. And so I anticipated that getting interviews from these communities would be quite difficult. And that was definitely a challenge even just getting any interviews with any kind of group of people was was still surprisingly very challenging. In fact, it took months before I even got my first interview. And so I did think I needed that time to both cultivate a strong enough network. And also, and here's another thing that I think doesn't get talked about enough is that I wanted to do long-term field work, but I also was able to get this field work funded. And I think, we should acknowledge the fact that not everyone has those kinds of resources to do fieldwork for 15 months. And then what are some of the challenges? I think there were the typical challenges, right, of trying to get interviews. I think that was a lot more difficult. There's some cultural differences as well. So even though I am of Indonesian heritage, I was raised in Canada and so I really anticipated being able to set all of these interviews like two to three weeks in advance it really didn't happen. A lot of times I couldn't confirm interviews until like a day before, and then you just never knew what your schedule was like. And so that I found quite <laughs> challenging. But and I think things like safety, physical health, those were all considerations that I didn't really think um, that much about. So yeah, those were just some of the challenges that I encountered while doing field work.
1: How were you able to overcome those challenges?
0: Well, I think getting interviews is just like persistence and sometimes just like being willing to have no shame in that, continuing to ask, and then also saying yes to a lot of invitations. Sometimes I'm a bit of an introvert in the sense that I need breaks from human interaction at times. And so I think pushing past that, of course, knowing your limits as well is important. So. You just have to work your way through some of challenges of finding interviewees. In terms of physical health, I also just realized you have to have boundaries and that in many ways when you're a qualitative researcher, your body is your research instrument. That's what one of my colleagues often says. And so prioritizing became, I think, eventually quite important. And then yeah, physical safety. I think you just realize that there are certain things that you have to do to make sure you're safe, which includes sort right, of Anticipating the fact that you need an exit plan. We don't really talk about the safety challenges that go along with doing field work, but I think having a plan is probably central to that because most likely nothing will happen to you, but if at least you've thought about it.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for sharing these very useful and practical tips with the listeners here. So I'm also interested in asking you about how your combination of Investigating archival data along with conducting interviews provided you with novel empirical or theoretical insights. Can you share a bit about how they complement each other?
0: Yeah, so I went into the field very much wanting to do interviews and potentially participant observation. And I did a little bit of participant observation, mostly around advocacy events for minority that minorities were holding themselves. But my primary method was interviewing. The reason why I chose to do archival data was that I quickly realized an empirical gap. So the Ahmadiyya in Indonesia really only began to be targets in 2005. And before then, they weren't left alone, but they were not politically salient at sort of the national or regional level. And so there was very little information about them at the local level. Several scholars had already sort of come up with work that covered the national history. So for example, Jeremy Menchik's book covers a lot of the history of the Ahmadiyya and sort of national level Islamic organizations like Muhammadiyya and Perseus, for example. But the, the local, the local histories, which was my unit of analysis essentially. There wasn't a lot of history there. And so I was very grateful to the Jama'ah Ahmadiyya Indonesia for helping me out with that information. And how did it lead to? Let me start again in the sense that doing archival research was really pivotal for me to get that historical element, which I think is crucial for my work. So that's sort of how both of these things, these pieces of data worked together. How did it help me come up with my research? I think is. It's hard for me to pinpoint because I do think that interviewing really helped ethnography and just being in the field for so long was really important for me to get to put things together in terms of what interview interviewers were saying. So, for example, I would often hear from interviewees how they were so upset over the fact that that there was public proselytization, for example. I would also often hear, The fact that people were really upset about the fact that the Ahmadiyya mosque put up a sign saying that the mosque was an Ahmadiyya mosque. I also noticed from reading newspaper coverage that a lot of protests were really targeting these aspects. And to make it perhaps more concrete, I remember interviewing the Ahmadiyya community in the city of Medan in North Sumatra, and they were saying that, oh yeah, we heard that the FBI was coming to protest our mosque, but then we just took down their sign and then they canceled the protest. So all of these statements, I thought were just, I couldn't really reconcile them. And it really took me many months, even after I came back from the field to kind of begin to think that this element of public space was important.
1: Great. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree on this value that multi-method uh, research design can bring, right? And especially in terms of intensive fieldwork and can bring to academic research insights. Yeah, and then for the next question, if we go beyond Indonesia, do you think that we might also find similar types of micro-sized groups elsewhere that are also being persecuted in similar way as the Ahmadiyya communities?
0: Yeah, I think so. What's really interesting to me is that, you know, when I was trying to make sense of this topic, it took me a long time to figure out what exactly I was puzzling about this group in the sense that it was so small and how all the implications that come along with sort of population size, right, in terms of their threat level, economically, et cetera. But then as I was thinking through how to move the project beyond Indonesia, people would always be like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of this group and that group. And so groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses in Kazakhstan and Russia, that's a micro, very much religiously repressed. The Baha'i in Iran are, are similar. The Nirankaris in northwestern India are another group that has been uh, targets of violence, Even though theoretically, we don't expect these small groups to be targeted, I think they are.
1: And to continue on that thought, what lessons on conflict processes do you think your research can offer scholars and even general audience who are concerned about violence against marginalized minorities?
0: I think maybe I can take that question in two parts. The first is what might an academic audience get from my work? I think fundamentally sort of the main contribution of my work or the main contribution of the book project is that it highlights the centrality of public space and visibility in conflict dynamics. And there's been work on the importance of public space. And I think we kind of know that there are a lot of cases where groups very much center public space, but I think in many ways, these sort of (laughs) non-material elements of conflict haven't been studied as much as, of course, also matter, like political inequalities or economic inequalities. But I think what the book does is that it really focuses on the role that public space and visibility has in conflict dynamics. And I think analytically centering that can help us make sense of actions that we often see as perhaps on its face, inefficient or non-rational. For example, whether a statue can be there or a flag. <laughs> they invest so much into these things. Analytically, I think that's helpful. And my work can kind of give us one way to make sense of these kinds of phenomena. I think in terms of what are the, the policy implications of my work, I think what's important is that one thing, that public space is really a site for renegotiation, right, Of claiming belonging. It's a site where these things can be renegotiated. And so one thing that knowing the importance of public space gives activists or anyone who want to make the world a better place for minorities, one implication of my work is that an important site of advocacy would be the state. The state has a responsibility to enable minorities to make claims on public space.
1: Yeah, I think that these are such great points. And for the final question of this podcast interview, I'm also curious about your other ongoing or upcoming projects. Can you share more about them with the audience? Yes, this book project is
0: really my priority right now. Basically, my time in the field sort of really made me very interested in sort of qualitative this interest in qualitative research methods was also very much encouraged by the late Leanne Fuji, who has written so much insightful work on, on qualitative research methods. But she really encouraged me to really write about this. And I've written a piece uh, co authored with Ari Glass on the role of positionality and how to think about positionality in practice in political science. And I'm currently writing. An article that sort of extends that line of thinking with Shahar Banu, who was one of the research assistants that I worked with. We're working on a piece together on research assistants and their impact on the work that we produce. So that's the piece I'm literally writing right now.
1: Oh, that is great to hear. Thank you for sharing about your fascinating work with us, Jessica. It is such a pleasure to learn from your research.
0: Thanks so much for having me and also to the audience for taking the time to listen.
1: I am Maven Tran. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.